Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News, where today we have a very special guest. Yes, you may not have heard of her often, but she is one of the most influential women in Washington, particularly when it comes to the judiciary. Carrie Severino of the Judicial Crisis Network is here to join us today. Since 2005, she has been the leading voice on the conservative side in vetting judges, in appellate court judges, and of course, Supreme Court justices. And we just happen to have a Supreme Court nomination hearing coming up on Tuesday next week with uh, Judge Amy Coney Barrett. And uh, Carrie's going to break it all down for us, how how we vet these judges, what could happen, how does the issue of Catholic faith going to play into the hearing or not, uh, how the Democrats might act, how the defenders on the conservative side will will uh, play this out, and uh, what will happen before Election Day. Will we have a ninth justice back on the Supreme Court? And of course, given the fact that Kamala Harris last night wouldn't talk about this, we'll also ask uh, Carrie about that question that we're all thinking. Are the Democrats thinking of packing the Supreme Court, adding more than nine justices to flip it their way? It's a great question. We'll have to wait and see. But um, we're going to ask Carrie all that and get the latest insights on the monumental confirmation hearing, historic, first time ever of a hearing in the final 30 days of an election. Carrie Severino from the Judicial Crisis Network here to give it all sense. That's what we're looking for. We want to make sense of it for you. All right, we're going to go to a quick commercial break, and then when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about something we broke yesterday on the show. Yes, the president has ordered the declassification of all Russia documents. He says, without redactions, we're going to put that claim to the test right away. Why? Because our good friends at the Southeastern Legal Foundation just got a new FOIA yesterday, 24 hours after President Trump issued his latest declassification order. You're going to want to see what it looks like and hear about what really happened. We're going to get to that. And then to our special guest, Carrie Severino from the Judicial Crisis Network, joining us in a few minutes. We'll be right back after these commercial messages. Hey, folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you gotta do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code just news at checkout. That's promo code just news at fieldofgreens.com. All right, folks, welcome back to the uh, John Solomon Reports podcast. I'm so lucky to have you here. Uh, in a few minutes, we're going to have Carrie Severino join us from the Judicial Crisis Network, somebody who's on the front lines of the Amy Coney Barrett nomination process, someone who's been extraordinarily influential in helping. Uh, 
vet conservative justices um, uh, over the last decade and a half. I think it really goes back to 2015, as I recall. And we're going to ask her about all things uh, related to next Tuesday's beginning of the confirmation process for Judge Amy Coney Barrett to be on the U.S. Supreme Court. All right, before we get to that issue, we're going to talk to uh, you about something that uh, we all care about, right? We, we want transparency from our government in America. We're frustrated when it doesn't occur. And so uh, I know there was a lot of excitement Tuesday night around 10 o'clock when President Trump tweeted out, I've ordered the declassification of any and all Russia collusion documents, as well as those related to the Clinton email scandal. Uh, and he said with emphasis, because he added an exclamation point, no redactions. You heard that? No redactions. Complete transparency, something that those of us who've worked on the Russia case for a long time have been pleading for. Well, uh, it wasn't but 24 hours later when our good friends at the Southeastern Legal Foundation, that's a public interest law firm down in Atlanta, they have worked with just the news on many important FOIA cases in the last year. All those documents I've been able to bring you on this show and just the news about Hunter Biden, Burisma, the State Department, you know where those came from? The good hard work of the great lawyers at um, the uh, Southeastern Legal Foundation. Uh, we're so lucky to be working with people like Kimberly Herman, Todd Young, two of the best. They run the foundation. They, uh, Kimberly's the general counsel and chief lawyer. Really important work they do. They're, uh, they do work like we, uh, our good friend Tom Fitton does at Judicial Watch. We've been lucky to enlist the Southeastern Legal Foundation as our counsel on some very important cases. One in Missouri uh, against the Soros-funded prosecutor Kimberly Gardner and several in Washington. Uh, some of those focused on the State Department and the Hunter Biden Burisma Ukraine scandal. But uh, they got a FOIA separate of uh, Just the News. Uh, it's a single document that had been mentioned in a footnote of the uh, Robert Mueller investigative report back in April of 2019. Now, think about that. That was 18 months ago, and we're just getting a copy of the document. Well, at least we thought we were getting a copy of the document. Uh, so Southeastern Legal Foundation filed the FOIA. They, they had a lawsuit. They won. They got the document yesterday. It had been declassified back in March. Now, what is it first? It is an email between a National Security Council member, uh, advisor, actually analyst, I think is the right word, named Eric Charmella. Now, if that name sounds familiar, it's because Real Clear Investigations identified him as the man who filed the whistleblower complaint against President Trump that started the whole uh, Ukraine uh, impeachment proceedings last summer, last fall, into January of this year. Uh, I have not been able to independently confirm that Charmella is a whistleblower. And quite frankly, for the purpose of this story, it doesn't really matter. But Eric Charmella writes an email in May of 2017. President Trump's in office about five months. President Trump has a conversation with the Russian ambassador, or foreign minister, I'm sorry, Russian uh, diplomats. Uh, I believe Lavrov is his name. And uh, somehow he is writing an email to a fellow NSC colleague about what happened or what transpired or what time and date the meeting occurred. And that became very important to Mueller, so much so that he mentioned it in his report. Now, at the end of the day, there was no collusion, so it doesn't really matter, right? But, uh, you know, it was something that Robert Mueller's team thought important. Why? Because there's a conversation on the NSC about what transpired or, or uh, what the meeting was with Lavrov and Trump. 
And then about 10 days after that email, there was a leak in the news media um, saying that Donald Trump, during the meeting with the Russian diplomats, mentioned he had just fired James Comey and had called James Comey a derogatory name. I think it was nut job or nutcase, as I remember. Uh, so Mueller mentions the sequencing, that there was some concern in the NSC. Uh, and for some reason, he shouts out this Charmella email. And other than knowing that it has something to do with the Lavrov conversation, we don't know much more than that. So uh, Southeastern Legal Foundation, because of Charmella's history and background and what people know about him, uh, we thought, well, let's get the email. It should be fine. It was released to Mueller. Mueller had no problem mentioning in his report. It can't be a national secret, right? And so uh, they put a FOIA in, a Freedom of Information Act request. It goes on for quite some time, uh, over a year, I believe, or nearly a year. And yesterday, one day after President Trump gave the new declassification orders, remember what that is, all Russia case documents, all declassified, no redactions, right? Very simple order. President is incredibly clear on this. Well, the uh, Southeastern Legal Foundation opened up their email. They got the document, single-page document, yeah, yeah, you're right. I know what you're thinking, and you're going to turn out to write. It's totally redacted. Only three words of the entire memo are visible to be seen. Everything else has a big, giant black pen marking out all of the transparency on that document that President Trump had just promised us the day before. Now, who are the perpetrators? Who are the bureaucrats trying to keep this document secret? Well, 15 of the 17 excuses or redaction marks on the document come from the National Security Council, Charmella's old employer. But more importantly, the National Security Council works inside the Trump White House. They work directly for the president. Robert O'Brien is the National Security Advisor. Well, the president's own National Security uh, Council, the Donald Trump National Security Council, requested 15 of the 17 redactions. The other two came from Chris Ray's FBI. Now, in fairness to Chris Ray, he declassified the documents and the two uh, redactions that are attributed to the FBI seem to be very minor. Uh, look to be like email addresses or dates. It's not really that important to understanding. But the big black blobs in the middle of the content of the email, those redactions come from President Trump's own National Security Council. And what excuses? Well, they got thing, raise things like executive privilege. The president might want to claim executive privilege. Now, just a day ago, we heard from the president saying, no privilege, put it out, no redactions, everything. Well, it shows you that the president may be in control of the White House, but he isn't in control of the bureaucracy because this document came out and it's more redacted than almost any document I've got gotten in FOIA the last year. I mean, you can't read anything. It's completely secret and it's declassified, right? Which means there's no longer anything deemed to be sensitive or classified. Uh, uh, you have to ask yourself, if the president gives an order and the bureaucracy doesn't carry it out, what is the penalty? I don't know the answer. I'm waiting to see what the president does, what Mark Meadows does. Uh, but we're objecting. We think this is outrageous. And uh, the timing couldn't be more um, alarming. It's the day after. Now, I'm sure, I'm sure they worked on this redaction before the president gave the order. But the president gave an earlier order in May of 2019. And between those two orders... We still have bureaucrats and agencies like the NSC, the FBI, the CIA, all dragging their feet, ignoring a lawful presidential order and keeping the American people in the dark about the Russia collusion disaster, the hoax, the dirty political trick. 
Um, that is what this is about and why it's so important. If you want to go see the document, the picture says more than anything wiser I can say. Just go to justthenews.com right now. It's on the front page. You'll find it, and you'll begin scratching your head the second you start looking at it. You, you can't make this stuff up, but this is how Washington works. It's why we created Just the News, to hold these bureaucrats, these government agencies, these political figures to account, because if not, they feel like it's their job to decide what you and I and the rest of the world get to see. That's not what our founding fathers intended. All right, we're going to come right back from this uh, next commercial break uh, from our great sponsors and advertisers to talk to Carrie Severino of the Judicial Crisis Network, all things Amy Coney Barrett, the nomination coming up right after these messages. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest, Carrie Severino, the president of the Judicial Crisis Network, one of the most influential voices when it comes to picking judges, vetting judges, vetting Supreme Court justices like Amy Barrett, a big big player on the scene. You may not have heard of her often, but her influence is far and wide. Carrie, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Before we get started, because I know everyone's going to want to talk about the Barrett nomination, but before we get there, um, describe a little bit about how much the Judicial Crisis Network does. It's so influential. It's so active. It does so many remarkable things. I just want to make sure our listeners are fully apprised about, about the group's many, many facets. Yeah, we've been around since 2005, really because we saw the way that confirmation processes were starting to go, where you saw people like Bork being attacked uh, with, with unfair accusations about his record, people like Justice Thomas being attacked with the smear campaigns the last minute. And uh, we realized if you want to get constitutionalist judges confirmed to the court, you need to treat it almost like a campaign. You need to have people who are there to defend the nominees when often they aren't in a position to be able to speak and defend themselves. So we are the group that does that. Uh, we, we do everything from running ads to speaking on TV or radio like or podcasts or writing about this, educating senators, educating other grassroots activists who love the courts, care about the courts, and want to do everything they can to make sure our judges feel themselves bound by the rule of law, the Constitution. It's remarkable. I remember when the group was founded. I was still at the AP as a young reporter, and um, I, I think the choice of the word crisis was important because when, when you started this, you saw that there was a crisis in the judiciary process in, in, and how judges were selected and nominated, how they were vetted. Um, has that crisis gotten any better, or has the Kavanaugh and soon-to-be Barrett hearings um, uh, only proven further how much your, your, your group's work is needed? Well, you know, I think actually both. <laughs> so the, the good news is the crisis in terms of the types of judges we have in our courts is not just getting better, but in the last three, almost four years now, we have seen a huge blossoming of new, amazing young judges, and Amy Coney Barrett being one of them, a Trump appointee herself to the Seventh Circuit. Right. You've got these up-and-coming judges 
who really deeply understand how to approach the Constitution and the law and who, uh, as an added you know, benefit, have this courage that Trump really likes to vet for, someone who's not afraid to stand up for what they know is, is right. So that on the, on the one side, the, in, in terms of the actual judiciary, well, there's still obviously a lot of judges that, you know, probably don't consider themselves as bound to the text of the law or the Constitution, as I would think would be good. You have it, this new generation, which is exciting. Has, has the crisis and the confirmation process stopped? I think no, in some ways, because of the progress that the conservative legal movement has made, you're seeing the left being even more over the top crazy. That's why they went so crazy during the Kavanaugh hearings. They realized that, oh my gosh, we, we had this swing vote in Kennedy, and now he's going to be replaced by someone who is actually, you know, an originalist who right. looks at the original meaning of the Constitution, not, you know, what did I have for breakfast today? And uh, the same thing is happening here with Barrett. They're so outraged that this liberal icon, Justice Ginsburg, could be replaced by a woman who comes at it from a different perspective, who kind of puts a lie to the identity politics that all women must think and act alike, even though that's frankly what Justice Ginsburg herself acknowledged. And, and I think in, in many ways she does uh, follow in, in Ginsburg's footsteps in terms of being a pathbreaker. It's just that she comes at the law from a very different perspective. It is, uh, it is remarkable that um, most of the focus up to this point, you had a great tweet the other day that really caught my attention, but most of the focus on Amy uh, so, uh, Barrett so far has been really focused on her faith, not her credentials, not her judicial work, but just all of these attacks on the Catholic faith. And, uh, faith. and I know that you um, uh, had a great tweet saying that we ought to take our lesson from John F. Kennedy, or at least the Democrats should take their lesson in cues from John F. Kennedy, who faced something similar back in the 60s. Why is it that the focus has been put on her faith and not on her writings and her judicial um, capabilities? Well, in one sense, who knows? Because the Constitution says there's no there's no religious test for office. So the idea that that would be the grounds on which someone's attacking a judicial nominee is really outrageous. But I think the reason they've gone there is simply because her credentials are so outstanding. It's very hard to take issue with someone who has such a, a long 15-year um, track record as an outstanding and much-loved professor uh, by her students, by her colleagues on both sides of the aisle. And boy, there's a lot of colleagues on the left side of the aisle in legal academia, right? But, right. but she's so well-respected. She has this track record on the bench that is, I think, unimpeachable. She's, she is very faithful to the law, um, not politic-driven. She's, she's, she's driven by what is the correct legal answer. So it's hard to go after her on any reasonable grounds if you thought you know she wasn't didn't approach the law well so they have to go this underhanded route attacking her faith we've seen some people have been suggesting that they should dig into her, her adoption of she two of her five children are adopted from right. Haiti, and and saying oh maybe we should look into these maybe there's irregularities with the adoption i mean this is really ugly and um i, I think it's just this last ditch effort uh, from people who like chuck schumer have said nothing's off the table but folks some of these things really should be off the table yeah, these tactics don't feel like judicial vetting. They feel often like personal ad hominem political attacks. And, of course, mm -hmm. this process was designed to be above politics, right? That's why we created the judiciary, to be above politics. Um, what is the most important thing to watch for when the hearings start next week? Um, what's the dynamic you'll be looking for? What are the things that our listeners and the American public should be watching for in the Q&A and in the give and take uh, between senators and this nominee? Well, I'm excited because 
for anyone who got to see her first hearing for the Seventh Circuit or maybe snippets of it when she was attacked by Senator Feinstein oh, and Senator yeah, Durbin for moment. her religious beliefs. Oh, it, it was it was it was so shocking. I almost thought I was in the wrong channel. I was watching. I was like, Wait a minute! Thought you were in a fiction movie, huh? <laughs> yeah, seriously. And, but but you know, she had such poise and such composure and and strength in that moment that she didn't back down and say, "No, I, I you know, I, I, I apologizing for her belief. Oh, I'm sorry." You know, but she also she was firm. But she also said, "You look. Those aren't questions that are even relevant to my role as a judge." And she had and and, and what's so impressive is. She can't have possibly foreseen that they were going to go down that route. This isn't something she could have prepped for because that was such an outrageous, you know, out of left field right. attack. Now she even even more she will she knows she can get these kind of attacks. So I think it's just going to be a, a, probably a very good lesson in what an outstanding uh, uh, woman Vera is. You're going to get to see her poise, her um, her intellect as she's responding to questions. I do think we have to be aware. You, you could see more of these religious attacks. You could see the ugly, you know, attacks on her family, et cetera. You're also going to probably see Democrats and maybe even some Republicans trying to pin her down to say how she's going to vote on certain cases. We know that's, that's just not a thing, folks. It's, it's, a, it's a canon of judicial ethics that says you can't, you can't right? forecast how you would vote in a case. Justice Ginsburg, in dozens of cases, when she was being asked at her, at her hearings, said, I'm sorry, I can't tell you. And, you know, they accepted it then, and then suddenly they're going to try to create a new standard for Barrett. That's just not the case. Um, you know, you're going to see them trying to attack cases that she decided, saying that, well, this means that she's, you know, politically one way or the other. Guys, she, she is, if you read her cases, she's so careful to be very systematic in, in looking at the law. She's come to cases that are for and against the Trump administration. She has come, she just looks to see what the law says. So they're going to try to impute the outcome of these cases to something that she somehow wanted personally as a judge. And that's never a judge's role, but she has someone who's been more articulate than almost anyone I know in explaining the proper role of a judge and how that's not what we do. So, you know, if it comes to a, a result that you don't like, blame the legislator. If, the, if this was a bad law, go back and blame the legislators. Don't, don't blame the judges who are simply tasked with applying it. Um, so I, I think it's really going to be a, a kind of, civics lesson for the country to get to hear from her. But I hope it's also not an opportunity to get to see how, how low uh, the opposition will think. I think we, you know, we have to tune in to find out. Yeah, no, there, it, uh, we've seen so many tactics. Uh, we can go back to Bork, but certainly by Kavanaugh, who, who thought we would get to that level uh. of tactics and um, who knows what's in the, in the bag of tricks that the opposition has for this. I think when we, um, I, I, I remember the Feinstein exchange with, um, with Judge Barrett, and I thought it was really remarkable because her first response was, this is irrelevant because under judicial canon ethics, I can't let my faith influence anything I do. Right. She had that really bright line. You know, we, we, today there's so few, there's so many gray lines in politics, but she just had this really bright line that whatever my faith is, it can't ever enter into any of the rulings that I do because that's not what a judge does. Do you think that that sort of message resonates with everyday Americans? Oh, yeah. I think that's what we all would like to see in our judiciary. I think, frankly, that's the answer. And whether it's her, your faith, your politics, all of those things, but judge, a judge's job, and they take an oath uh, to this effect, is to uphold the law and the Constitution of the United States. So it's not to read into the law what my politics or my faith or my personal preference or whatever tells me. It's to interpret the law. The, the irony of this all is she actually had even written an entire um, law review article. It was one of the first articles she wrote 
was about what should a Catholic judge do if he's personally or any judge really, but in, it, was, it was in the context of Catholicism. If you're opposed to the death penalty um, on religious grounds, but you're, you're a judge, you're sitting on a capital case. And the conclusion that she came to, which I think is exactly right, is if you, you can't set, set the law aside because of your religious beliefs, but you also shouldn't set your conscience aside and do violence to your conscience. If you think this is fundamentally immoral, then you can't be the judge sitting there sentencing someone to death. However, in that case, the judge's job is to recuse. I think that's the perfect response. I think that's something that people across both sides of the spectrum could agree on. We don't want to drive people of faith out of the bench. And Justice Ginsburg herself was very open about how her, her Jewish faith it, um, inspired her to become a lawyer in the first place and how she, she felt this was an, an important aspect of her life. We want that to be part of Americans' lives, right? So she, she I think, co covered that exactly. You don't have to compromise your faith, but you also can't violate your judicial oath. You simply recuse. It will be remarkable um, for another reason, because there's really been in public two types of Catholics in the political uh, sphere. There's the Kennedy, Pelosi, Biden Catholics that uh, say they're Catholic and practice the Catholic faith, but in fact don't support some of the precepts of the Catholic faith, such as allowing abortion or uh, other things. Um, in Barrett, we're likely to see if they, if they go there, right? And again, there's a great question about whether it's even relevant, but if they go there, you, you're going to see it looks to me from her past writings and her past interviews and her rulings, somebody whose beliefs are in sync with the church. They don't they don't have half one foot in the church and one foot out of the church. Will that be uh, how will that um, play to the American public as they look at a judge who is, you know, very uh, singularly devoted to her faith and consistent in her faith? Well, you know, I, I think we're seeing already that for some Democrats, that's a very frightening prospect. <laughs> Uh, it, 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 Senator Feinstein said, uh, for people for whom the dog will live loudly within them, for her, she thinks that's a concern. I think for a lot of Americans, um, they might not share her Catholic faith, but they have a faith of their own that they have very deeply held, and they respect someone who who takes that those kind of things seriously. Uh, certainly, that's not all Americans, but I think we can all respect someone who has deeply held beliefs and who wants to be faithful to them. I think that's a feature, not a bug. <laughs> you know, right, as, right. as Bill Gates mentioned, this is this is really what our American um, experiment was was about initially. It's finding a country where people could live their lives, live their faith uh, without government interference. The um, when you started um, the Crisis Network, Judicial Crisis Network, back 15 years ago. Uh, we were at a 5-4 conservative majority, but it really was a swing majority. Then it became a little bit more solid 5-4 conservative. Uh, Roberts, sometimes the chief justice has frustrated uh, conservatives. Now you're, you're looking at a potentially a 6-3 conservative block, something we haven't seen in a long, long time. What will the court look like and what will be some of the important issues that could come before the court with a 6-3 majority of conservatives uh, should um, uh, Judge Barrett get confirmed? Well, I want to emphasize first that, it, yes, 6-3 conservative majority is the way, the way that a lot of people, it's a good shorthand. Right. But when we're talking about a conservative majority, we don't mean a politically conservative majority. That's right. how, who do these people vote for? You know, maybe they all are voting for, for Republicans. I don't know. But the, the important thing is not to replace the liberal judicial activists with conservative judicial activists. The important thing is to replace them with people who are constitutionally conservative. And that means... They're simply applying the law as it's written. That means they're going to be in a position of if you had a law that was passed by Democrats and signed by a Democratic president, maybe they're applying a law that they totally think is wrong-headed. Maybe they're applying a 100-year-old law that they think is hopelessly out of date. 
maybe it's a law that was just so slapless, sloppily written that, you know, you, everyone can see the sausage was not made well. Right. But they are going to follow it as it's written. And that is the kind of thing that for Americans across the political spectrum should be welcome because it means, oh, wow, now it's back in our elected representative's hands to write the law. That's how the Constitution designed it. So they're going to be out there you know, vigorously enforcing the constitutional provisions that are there, making sure the First Amendment is strongly enforced. That's something that we've seen the court be very strong on uh, free speech, sure. freedom of religion, making sure that that's respected, the right to bear arms, that, uh, that, that that is also respected, making sure the statutes are written, act, uh, uh, read as they are written, making sure the separation of powers is respected. You don't get a president that just gets to go off and do their own things, whether it's President Obama or President Trump, they still have to follow the constitutional limits on their power, right. the constitutional limits on Congress's power. So all of those issues, I think that, that then puts it back in the way the Constitution was designed. And obviously, if the American people want to change that design, if they say, you know, Second Amendment, that's so, you know, 18th century, we want, we want to have a few more limits on this, great. That's what the, the amendment process is a for. process for that's it, right? Not what, right, it's not what the judges for they're there to simply apply the law when you look at the term that just opened this week uh there's a lot of interesting cases already accepted and um what do you think if uh judge barrett gets onto the court what are going to be some of the early cases that will get allow us to see her in action what are the cases you'll be watching in the in this upcoming term wow well so there's some there's some important religious freedom cases that are coming up uh there's a case there's an obamacare case that's being argued before she will probably sit on the bench, I think it's coming up in October, although I have to double check that. Um, uh, so that that is going to be coming up as well. Uh, there there are some cases that deal with, they're never as exciting a fact, but they deal with the importance of the separation of powers, making sure that we don't have this administrative state that's just outgrowing all of the other actually elected branches of the government. So we're being run by bureaucrats instead of actually by our elected representatives. Uh, that's an issue the court's going to be looking at. So I think you know, there's, there's going to be every year there's exciting stuff coming up. There's also, of course, going to be in the court just had an election law case that came right. down as state. South Carolina, right? You know, some of them in a last minute matter, right, are, are changing their election laws uh, to deal with COVID. But we've seen the court thus far be very uh, hesitant to say, OK, go ahead and make this last minute change. It's like, no, 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 you need to have we need to have procedures that are well established and you know, don't we can't have anything, any shenanigans at the last minute. But I think they, the court probably will have to be deciding some of these issues on a rolling basis, beginning into and then maybe following even Election Day, uh, because we know this is unfortunately, I think, going to be one of these most litigated uh, elections, um, if it's close in particular of, of you know American history, because we've got teams of people on both sides getting ready to uh, make sure that things are, uh, you know, everything gets drawn out. So I think there'll be lots of opportunities uh, right off the bat to get a perspective on her, her approach and her, uh, how her principles uh, will play out. Yeah, no, it's going to be fascinating. And uh, I think uh, we just, uh, you have a strong sense that this, this election may very well end up in the Supreme court, right? Is that uh, as you look out a, a strong possibility? Well, I, again, I think it depends a little bit on how close some of these votes are, but point. I, I really hope we don't see that. Um, I, I, I think Bush versus Gore was, was a unpleasant time for everyone that was in the <laughs> Supreme Court as well as for the rest of the nation. Absolutely. I think it would be good for everyone to know, you know, sometime in November at least, for goodness sake, 
who the next president is. <laughs> but I think you do have some people who, you know, look, we've got people who have been engaged in a resistance for four years, not right. believing that Donald Trump won. I, I don't think we can uh, discount the possibility that there's going to be uh, protraction like, yeah. uh, litigation. So similar this time around. Well, Carrie, I can't thank you enough. Um, I've watched your work for many years, and and the, really the formation of this judiciary as we have it now under the Trump administration has been a, a large result of your your tireless work over 15 years. So we hope to get you back on the show soon and want to thank you for, for the time today. Great. Well, good talking to you. Thanks, Carrie. Okay, folks, we'll be right back uh, in a few minutes to wrap things up after this commercial break. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. All right, folks, we're back from the commercial break. And... Um, Wow, what an interview with Carrie. I hope you learned a lot about the process and what the Judicial Crisis Network does, what we can expect to see next week, what we hope we don't see, what we hope the American people focus on and don't focus on. Uh, a very illuminating, enlightening interview from one of the frontline players on, on the federal judiciary, on judicial nominations, and particularly this particular nomination, the Supreme Court nomination of Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Very important stuff. Don't forget to tell people about that redacted document. Spread the word. The president's orders don't seem to be being complied with. Don't seem to be complied with by the bureaucracy, but we, the people, have the ability to go illuminate that, put pressure on these agencies. Let's get the truth out. Listen, maybe there's nothing important in Eric Charmella's email. Maybe there's a lot important. Certainly, Robert Mueller thought it important enough to mention in his report. That means we, the people in the American society and the journalism society, are good friends at the Southeastern Legal Foundation. They deserve to see what's in this document. It's not classified, so we're not jeopardizing national secrets. It looks like what we're really jeopardizing is politics and, and political questions, and uh, we need a way to get that eraser pen to get rid of those black marks and allow us to see that document and so many more that have been withheld from us for the last two, three, four years. We now know it was a dirty political trick from the beginning and that the CIA and the FBI suspected it, but it didn't stop the bad behavior that followed. And today we have the continuance of the bad behavior. Now it's not about <clears throat> the ongoing investigation long since closed. It's about the cover up, about the effort to deceive or to hide from the American people evidence that we deserve to see. Uh, go to justinnews.com right now. Check it out. We'll be back tomorrow with a special broadcast, a special edition of John Solomon Reports, something to send you into the weekend. We're going to bring some of our great reporters from the team here to talk about some of the week's most amazing news, which we've had a lot of. Until then, have a great time. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to John Solomon Reports, the podcast from justthenews.com.